91.3 WLRN presents Topical Currents. This hour we discuss rising South Florida property value and how it distresses low- and middle-income families and workers. Good afternoon, Joseph Cooper and Bonnie Berman. Medical professionals, firefighters, and law enforcement personnel find it tough to afford suitable housing. Our region also ranks high in rental prices, and young people in the workforce are squeezed, forced to depart for other locations. This flight includes mostly younger workers in what's termed the creative class, such as computer system designers, life science workers, educators, and artists. We return on Topical Currents with discussion by an expert panel in minutes after NPR and regional news. Joseph Cooper and Bonnie Berman, it's today's Topical Currents, Monday edition. An affordable housing shortage afflicts nearly all areas of the U.S., but South Florida is one of the hardest hit. Fixed-income retirees, low-income families, and young entry-level workers find it difficult or impossible to scrape by. In our region, some renters pay more than a risky 40% of their income on housing, plus utilities. Also, cuts in federal housing assistance funding are likely to the tune of 15%. We'll learn more about the housing crisis from two experts. First, we have the Associate Director of the Metropolitan Center at Florida International University. He's Dr. Ned Murray. The center is a leading South Florida think tank. Welcome back to you, Dr. Ned Murray. Good to see you. Thank you, Joe. Also with us is the president and CEO of the Housing Trust Group, attorney Matthew Rieger. The trust group is the leading developer of affordable housing in our state. Thank you for being with us, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd like to begin, actually, with you, um, Dr. Murray, or Ned, however you want it. <laughs> Welcome to both of you, though. Thank you. Uh, here we are on the heels of another crisis in South Florida. So has Irma created more of an aff- affordable housing disaster, and how does it differ from Andrew 25 years before? It's a good question because it's something we've been looking at um, over the last several weeks, uh, uh, reflecting on, on Hurricane Andrew, 1992, what's happened with the building code since that time, particularly the 2002 code, um, but then reflecting also back on, on uh, the national housing policy and many other policies that have been put forth uh, to reaffirm this 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 idea this goal of of providing every American with a safe, decent, and affordable housing unit. Safety and and condition is not something that normally is thought about these days uh, relative to affordability, but it's something that's always been part and parcel. So, in our analysis, we've been very concerned about the um, about the housing supply here in South Florida. Uh, for instance, here in Miami Dade, eighty four percent of the housing supply. Uh, it was built prior to Andrew. Mm. Um, so obviously most of that housing, unless it's been retrofitted, uh, does not meet those codes. So if we were to take a more direct hit along the I-95 corridor from Miami all the way up even to Palm Beach, uh, there would have been devastating impact. And of course, many of these neighborhoods along the I-95 corridor 
uh, some of the poor neighborhoods like Liberty City and Little Haiti and going all the way up into Broward and Palm Beach, Collier, Collier City, places like that. So in, in just, just in that quarter alone, we're talking 400,000 units of housing, a really important uh, housing supply or inventory to preserve and keep affordable and keep those populations there because that's where a lot of our workforce exists as well. They have labor participation uh, rates that are even higher in those areas than, than the county as a whole. So these are really important areas, and we were really concerned about that. We saw the impact in the Keys. We've done a lot of studies in the Keys, so we knew that that area was going to be very vulnerable. Uh, 6,000 mobile homes, 1,200 alone in Marathon. We have yet to hear what, what the results are of that, but that was a concern that we had uh, even going into the storm, let alone uh, what's, uh, what's, what the aftermath has been. Matthew Rieger, tell us more about the Housing Trust Group. It's not just in Florida. It's the southeast and also Arizona. Yes. It's, a, it's a for-profit agency, though. That's correct. We're a, we're a for-profit private company. Uh, we're the leading affordable housing developer in the state of Florida, and we are also doing uh, market rate housing in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and in Mesa, Arizona. But in Florida, where I'm from, primarily we uh, do affordable housing, which is financed through the low-income housing tax credit and other various means. How do you define affordable housing? So typically, that's, that's a good question. Uh, typically, affordable housing is defined as 60% of the area median income or less. Uh, there's other um, definitions of affordable housing, but traditionally, it's that 60% and less that we define as affordable housing. Could you explain how that low-income housing tax credit program works? Because it's a little confusing. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, and it's... Uh, it's something that uh, was created in 1986 during the Reagan administration, and it's pursuant to Section 42 of the Internal Revenue Code. And, and you know, just to sort of briefly explain it, the Treasury, the United States Treasury, every year gives states a certain amount of low-income housing tax credits that the states use to subsidize affordable housing. And it's on a per capita basis, so the bigger states get more low-income housing tax credits. And so where does Florida stand in, in all that? Well, we're one of the biggest states. So, you know, there's Texas, California, New York, and Florida, I think, is the fourth or fifth largest state in terms of per capita. So we get quite a bit of low-income housing tax credits. Unfortunately, though, it's not anywhere near enough to meet the demand. And how is that administered? So in Tallahassee, there's a, an agency called the Florida Housing Finance Corporation, and they're the state allocating agency. So the credits come into Florida. The state allocating agency, Florida Housing Finance Corporation, does what's called a QAP, a Qualified Allocation Plan, where they say, hey, Governor Scott, here's what we want to do with these credits this year. We want so many to go to seniors. We want so many to go to Dade County. We want so many to go to you know, help the homeless population. And then the governor signs off on that plan. And then Florida Housing administers throughout the year various RFAs, requests for uh, applications, where people apply for these tax credits. And because this is so oversubscribed, there could be 100 applications for just two allocations mm. of tax credits. Ned, let me ask you something. Florida is growing by record numbers. You know, the South Florida area, I don't think, is any exception. So what population is it that's here? Because if people can't afford housing, who keeps coming here, and why does it keep growing? We had 25 cranes up before Irma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. minus a couple that <laughs> yeah, right. fell. Well, we've been studying this issue going back to the to the preceding housing bubble in two thousand four, two thousand five. 
Um, and what we found even back then, and, and obviously it's accelerated over the past few years, is that there's an external demand that's that's not local. It, this is one market that has nothing to, with the housing market has nothing to do with who lives and works here. The resident workforce is essentially left out. The external demand is foreign investors, foreign buyers that are driving the driving the market. That was that started back in 2004, 2005. It's accelerated over the last several years. So that's really the issue here because when we start talking about affordable housing, the 60% AMI um, standard is 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 one that's that that's critical because these are these are the folks who are most in need um, and it, th at least that housing can be addressed for through public housing and to the low-income housing tax credit program and, and other programs like that but we now have an issue here where affordable affordability also is uh, is uh, um, a real issue relative to people making 120 150 up to 200 percent of the AMI because when we start looking at uh, the AMI, the, the the area median income. Okay. Um, think about my think about Miami Dade. We have a median income of about forty three thousand dollars. So if you double that, eighty six, that doesn't get you a lot of housing. So we're probably looking at somewhere between a gap right now between the sixty percent, all the way up to in our latest calculations two hundred and seventy percent. Right. Of median, that's that's the gap. That's the unmet gap in terms of workforce housing, and, and based upon the, the folks who work here and the folks that live here. Matthew, we're having a rental crisis as well, and as we mentioned in the open, some people are paying forty percent of their income um, to cover their costs plus utilities. So I assume um, this goes back to two thousand seven when so many people lost their homes. Yes, that's correct. So a lot of people were displaced, and a lot of people said, you know what, I don't want to buy a home anymore. Right. I think renting's the way to go. It's also something that you're seeing a lot with millennials. The idea of buying a house, getting a 30-year mortgage, and paying it off, and that being your big nest egg, is really not attractive to them. And, and one thing I want to go back to, to what Ned said, you know, when you asked me, Joe, about affordable housing, there's really three components. So Ned was alluding to the workforce, which is you know sometimes 80, 120%, 140% of the area median income, the AMI. And then there's another component, which is public housing, which is not affordable housing in terms of the low-income housing tax credit, that's 60%. That's for people, and that's administered by HUD, the Housing and Urban Development. So it's not through the Treasury, which goes to Florida Housing. That's through HUD, and so that's for the even more at-risk population. Is that the Section 8 housing? Correct. Public housing, Section 8 housing, vouchers, housing vouchers. So there's really those three components, the, the low, medium, and high. Also, how are, are uh, young people, say, who are just graduating high school and they have maybe uh, service jobs, how do they get by in this uh, rent situation? They just have to live like five or six to an apartment? Or, or, or live at home. Live at home. Yes, of course. Many people are staying home longer. Yeah, that, that's a critical issue and, and something that, that we look at because we, we, when we look at the housing market and, and the housing uh, issues in general, we're looking at it relative to the, to the larger economy. My background is actually economic development. So I, I'm very concerned about the local economy and our competitiveness relative to other metropolitan areas. We are losing our young, talented uh, uh, professionals and, and, and even the young population coming right out of college, they're going to, they're not going to Orlando or Tampa, they're going to Charlotte, Atlanta, right. Nashville, places like that, where, where, where housing, housing costs are much less 
and with, 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 where wages and salaries are very competitive, or maybe even more competitive than Miami and South Florida. So why is Atlanta housing cheaper than Miami? Well, once again, getting back to the point I made earlier, the, the demand, the external demand has really driven up the market, and it has nothing to do with actually people who live and work here. When we're talking about uh, median home prices of 325 to 350 here uh, in, in Miami-Dade and Palm Beach, I believe Broward now has exceeded 400,000 up to mm. 404,000. 80 percent of the households who live here could not afford that, and from a rent standpoint, if you're talking two thousand per month, only about you know same thing about eighty eighty five percent of the households could not rent, renting households could not afford that. That's why we're seeing these cost burden percentages that that we see all the time. Cost burden meaning that you shouldn't be paid paying more than thirty percent of your uh, income on housing costs. Well, the 30% standards almost become obsolete here in South right. Florida because most people, as Joe, you mentioned, are paying 40%, 50% or more, which now gets into a whole other issue in terms of quality of life, residual or, or disposable income, what's left. And what they can't buy exactly. as a result, like medicine, food, you know. I just want to go back to one thing I asked about the crisis, the Great Recession in 2007. I just wanted to add that I think for many people, it's still the Great Recession, even now. We're talking about the South Florida affordable housing crisis with Dr. Ned Murray, Associate Director of the Metropolitan Center at FIU, Florida International University, and Matthew Rieger is President and CEO of the Housing Trust Group, a developer of multifamily residential communities. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. We're back. It's today's Topical Currents, Joseph Cooper and Bonnie Berman on this Monday afternoon. We resume our conversation with Dr. Ned Murray and also Matthew Rieger. Dr. Ned Murray, tell us more about uh, the research that the uh, Met Center has done and uh, explain the term, the rent eats first. (laughs) Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Metropolitan Center, which is celebrating its 20th year, by the way, 20th anniversary, um, got into the housing business back in 2005. Before that, we were doing mainly economic development studies and, and uh, uh, transportation studies. And, but the housing issue be- really began to become uh, you know, probably the most pressing public policy issue that facing South Florida back in 2005, six, and of course we had the recession. Over the past several years, with the cranes going up that you alluded to, Joe, we, we saw those too. And we began looking at a little more deeply what, what, what was going on in the housing market. And, um, and so our studies are very, very in-depth. Uh, I, I don't even want to provide all the data, but let me tell you this. Most of our studies are available as PDFs on our website, metropolitan.fiu.edu. And certainly anyone wanted to contact me, we'd, give, we'd get you copies of those. Um, but we've done studies, um, extensive studies um, in Palm Beach, Broward County, Miami-Dade, and, of course, the Keys. Uh, Over those years, and we've honed down into certain markets, especially the rental market, which has become such a big issue uh, because on the rent side, as as Bonnie was referring to, if you're paying 50%, 60% of your income on rent, not to mention transportation costs, which we need to be tied into that as well, there is actually housing and transportation cost index. There There were folks living out in the western suburbs, out towards Kendall, Doral, and even up into Broward and Palm Beach, who are paying 70% on, 
of their of their income on housing and transportation costs, and and transportation driving a lot of that because they're commuting back and forth. So it's a critical issue which does not leave you with the residual income that you need. We our our studies have found that it, it not only does it impact the economy, local businesses can't hire, they can't they can't attract workers, they can't retain their workers, but wealth building is basically ruled out because if you if you don't have that home as an asset. Uh, that that you, that you can use that equity uh, to to do things, including fund your ch children's education. If you don't have the r a rent that allows you a rent price that allows you to save to buy a house, educational performance, health health indicators, all these things are impacted. So it gets back to this larger quality of life issue that at some point it becomes unsustainable. And we found in the keys back uh, eight years ago, as we hit that fifty percent criteria in terms of affordability. Should I say cost burden? That's when people begin to leave because you just can't handle it anymore. And if you look at uh, the population, the Keys Marathon was the one that we looked at more carefully. They they're actually losing families with children. They're losing population in these areas because people just cannot stay. So the question then comes for Miami and and Broward and Palm Beach: What happens then? What happens once you once you have a rent, an average rent that's 50 to 60 percent of your income, you have nothing left. Mm. To, for How do you keep teachers, uh, policemen, and medical personnel, nurses? Yeah, you can. You can. In fact, Marathon asked us to look at look specifically at that, and we found that the wages and salaries of, of police and firemen and teachers, uh, even healthcare, uh, uh, are are at are at the median. You know, so you, you, they they can't afford to live there. Matthew, mm -hmm. you we had talked a little about this before. Um, the show, the Sadowski Trust Fund. Would you explain what that is? Sure. So uh, back in 1992, the Florida legislature created the Sadowski Trust Fund, which was created for affordable housing. And for 12 years, those funds were used to develop more affordable housing. Uh, in 1992, the legislature had great foresight. Oftentimes, you know, they're looking for the next election. Here they were saying, you know what? We see in the future there's going to be an affordable housing crisis. Let's fix it now, even at our own expense. And so they did that, and for 12 years, those funds went for affordable housing. Since 2004, those funds have been raided by legislature, legislature. Okay, I just have to stop sure. you there. How did they get away with rating it if it was for affordable housing? When they passed their budget, they said, you know what, instead of... Which is in a flurry of activities in over a couple, two or three days sometimes. Yes, and, in back room. And so instead of, let's say, $300 million going to affordable housing, they'll say, you know what, we're going to give $100 million and $200 million are going to be used for other projects. They, they vote for that and they pass it. So it's not set in stone, this trust fund is tr for a, a fu affordable housing. It says that the trust fund shall be used for affordable housing, but unfortunately the legislature has, you know, taken money from that trust fund and used mm. it for other things. Okay. Doesn't the uh, county commissions in the three-county area, before they give building permits with some of these huge developments, um, have them a mandatory uh, workforce uh, level housing uh, built alongside of these things? Yeah, so th that's actually an, an interesting, you know, point. You know, I read an article in the Herald, I think it was a couple months ago, about uh, a lady who works on, on Miami Beach, and she drives two hours in a bus mm -hmm. to the beach to work for, I don't know, $15 an hour minimum wage, and then two hours back. So, so you know, one problem is affordable housing and how do we build more, but in the places where people need the jobs, right, the affordable housing is really expensive to build. So right. my dollar goes, 
you know, not nearly as far. So we're building it outside of city centers and people are still driving two hours in for their job. Um, you know, one potential solution is what you were referring to, Joe, as uh, uh, the uh, inclusionary zoning where you're requiring developers to do affordable housing with their market rate housing. Although, you know, from, from my experience, what that does is it might get you a couple units in that uh, in that city center, but it really doesn't, you know, it's just a drop in the bucket. It doesn't get anywhere near what you need. Um, you know, uh, Ned and I were talking before about, you know, the demand versus what we provide. And it, we're just, there's a huge discrepancy between what's needed and what we have the resources to provide. And does, Do all, does all this building also uh, encourage gentrification of known neighborhoods, such like in, in Miami with Overtown, Carroll City, I'm sorry, Carol, uh, Brownsville, and in Broward, uh, east of 95. Yeah, we to price we, those people out of their yeah, homes. We well, look what happened in Wynwood. Right, right. Just That's recently, precisely, that was my example, and because right. we had done the study for for Midtown some years ago, uh, and we knew there there was that potential. But it's happening in Alapata. It's happening in, in East Lower Lana. It, it's happening. In, it happened first in Coconut Grove. Right. Uh, so it's happening in a number of, of neighborhoods and municipalities up and down the I ninety five corridor. So that's a really important point, and w- and one of the reasons I mentioned the I-95 corridor, the Dixie corridor, because these are some of your old neighborhoods, established neighborhoods where you've got, as I said, upwards of 400,000 units in that area, two-to-one two rental, uh, where you do have a relatively affordable housing stock, a, a good percentage of our workforce, and these are the units that need to be preserved, number one, but the populations in those units need to be preserved as well. Can we... Are there remedies to this? Can we talk about remedies? What have you come up with? Well, Ned, you go first. Okay. Um, All our studies begin with a goal of um, trying to create a spectrum of housing choice and opportunity. A spectrum of housing choice and opportunity. And what do I mean by that? By choice, we're talking about location. Uh, type of housing, whether it be a flat, whether it be a single family, whether it be a condo, bedrooms. You know, one of the problems we have in the condo market right now, and even in the rental market, is there's a lot of small ones and not enough twos and threes for all the people that need families. That need that. Yeah, exactly, families. And, and, and roommates, which is very common, and that's how people live in Chicago and other cities. Uh, they have roommates. If you don't have two bedrooms, you can't have the so when we talk about housing choice then, so we're talking about location, type of housing, bedroom distribution, and then when we start talking about spectrum of housing choice and opportunity, uh, by opportunity, that's what we mean, affordability. And if it's not affordable um, at, at, the, at the salaries and wages that produce the incomes that we have here, um, upwards of, like I said, it, it, they need to be at least addressing people making 120 to 150 but but the gaps we're now seeing particularly in 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 the, in the single family market uh, are now exceeding 200% so th- that's just not sustainable when 80% of your households cannot afford to buy the median home price uh, and renters are even more so so the the young young people will not pay that young people will not pay that and they, and they will not make that drive because they're, 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 they're into Uber, they're into getting from their home to their job really, really quickly. They're not going to live out in Kendall uh, or in the western suburbs of Broward or Palm Beach and then move to Brickell for their job each day. Right. It just won't happen. 
and Matthew yeah. remedies. Yeah. Well, I think first of all we have to you know fix this disconnect. If everyone says there's an affordable housing problem, then the legislature needs to stop taking money away from fixing that problem. And in you know the way I see us solving this problem is more resources, and those resources come can come from the federal government, state legislature, and and locally. And with the federal government, uh, Senator Maria Cantwell and Orrin Hatch have joint legislation in the Senate that will increase the low-income housing tax credit by 50% over five years. That will allow us to build about 4,000 more affordable housing units in Florida. From a state level, we talked about this, the Sadowski Trust Fund, just let us have the money that the legislature was supposed to let us have. Well, that it's designated for. Correct. And, and thirdly, locally, um, there's things like surtax in Miami-Dade County, but also um, we, we're big believers in the public-private partnership where we use and we leverage our, our private company resources with uh, local housing authorities who often have access to things like land and or housing choice vouchers, which allow us to build more affordable housing and leverage the limited resources into more housing stock. You were saying before the show that it w- that you've tried to develop affordable housing in the Keys, but you haven't been able to. Why is that? Well, first of all, the Keys have very expensive land. And second of all, they have something in the Florida Keys called a ROGO, a right of growth ordinance, which intentionally limits the growth in the Keys. So they, they don't oh, want lots of growth in it. the Keys. So yeah. they're, very, they're limited with the ROGOs. And even if I have the ROGOs, which are very expensive to acquire, the land is very expensive as well. So we're dealing with limited resources, but very, very high prices. The low grow then uh, uh, inflates prices, Correct. obviously. Correct. Now, the Sadowski Housing Trust Fund, that's funded from uh, documentary stamps on uh, closings. Correct. So the bulk of that money is probably being collected in the urban areas with the high-priced condos and especially the coastal property. So where is it? it it's hard to believe that it's not going yeah. to low-income housing and, and, and medium-income housing. You're saying it goes to things that have nothing to do with housing. Complete, forgive me, but pork barrel projects. Okay. What could, I mean, I'm sure people listening, I'm wondering myself, what can we do about that? I would certainly reach out to your local uh, representatives and senators. And and, and reach out to your local representatives and senators and make sure um, that they know that affordable housing is something that's important to you. um, And you, you speak with your vote. Our telephone number, if you'd like to join in, we're talking about the shortage of affordable housing in South Florida. That's easy enough, 1-800-743-9576, 1-800-743-WLRN. Also, email, that might be quicker, radio at WLRN.org, radio at WLRN.org. I wonder if this has gotten a lot worse since Airbnb has come around in terms of rentals because, I mean, maybe those properties would not have been affordable anyway, but it just seems like people are making so much more money. I know of people who have little cottages. They're they're not probably supposed to, but they rent them, and they make a fortune on them where otherwise they would have somebody living there who's playing a fixed amount, you know, for the month. Yeah, I would say on the margins, places like Miami Beach and right. you know places where pe- Brickell, of course, p- where people would like to come. Um, but when we're talking the demand that, that Matt's referring to, our own calculations based upon a recent study we 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 just did in, in for Miami Dade alone was ten to twelve thousand units per year over the next ten years. That's the demand that's out there to meet the affordable housing need that we're talking about here. 
we're talking something of the, in the, uh, on the scale of the Veterans Emergency Housing Program that was put in place post-World War II. And so, and it shows it can be done because in those three years after the war, Joe, you probably remember this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that they, Levittown. <laughs> I was at Levittown. Yes. <laughs> there were two, th- th- we built two and a half million homes in the three years after the war. Two and a half, so it can be done. But and that's really the scale we're talking about here. But where are you going to find the land to do? Where is the land to to build? I well, mean, well, and, and there are many parts of the country where that you could find the land. No, I'm talking about here. Here, here, that is an issue, and land cost is what's driving a lot of right. right now, as Matt referred to. And that was a big issue back in 2004 and five. Land costs got up to the point where if you're paying a million dollars an acre. You know how can you build affordable housing? So, uh, but land, land, public land, other, you know, c- cities and counties need to look at being very aggressive when it comes to acquiring land banking, uh, and and then negotiating deals with with developers. Matthew, you want to add something? Yeah. So you, you make an interesting point in that, as affordable housing developers, we're limited on the resources we have to do development. A we're competing with market rate developers for the same parcel of land. Right. They can charge more rent if they're renting market rate, or they can sell that condo for a higher price. I'm capped on what I can charge on rent by HUD every year. So I my, my, my income is limited, but my expenses are not. So I can't really compete effectively with a market rate developer for the same parcel of land because he can pay more because he can charge more. I can't. Briefly tell us what the process is for someone to get a key through the housing trust uh, group. So you're talking about a, a renter wanting a, a unit. Well, here's the bad news a for low that. low-income renter. Here, here's the bad news for that renter. The day I bring a new property with a certificate of occupancy, it's 100% leased. I have triple-digit waiting lists at all my properties because there's such a limited amount of affordable housing units and the demand is so incredible. So if they're one of the fortunate people who's on that waiting list, you know, while they see us building, they'll call in, they'll get their name on a waiting list, and then we go through that waiting list because everyone who, who leases a unit has to be income qualified. So we need W-2s, and we need to make sure they don't make more than 60% of that area median income. Do you st- is, does ourhomes-ourvoices.org still exist? Is, are you part of that? That, that was a, um, an initiative, I think, a couple months ago that uh, was trying to bring attention to this affordable housing crisis all across the country. They still have a website. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, our houses, our homes-ourvoices.org, and I guess they have a lot of partners. Yeah, I think it's a, a national initiative ah. just to, to bring attention to this issue. Let's take a telephone call or two from our listeners. First up, uh, Pompano Beach caller. This is Anthony. Anthony, hi. Uh, good afternoon. One of the big problems that I find is condominiums are requiring 20% down or more and a 720 or better credit score for these first-time home buyers to get in. And, of course, they don't have 20%. There's loan programs out there that they could get in. Uh, and the condominiums are doing it to discriminate. Uh, they don't want first-time home buyers. They, won't, they don't want veterans, which I think is criminal. Uh, they don't want VA loans because they think if somebody puts less down, that that person is more likely to walk away if the market crashes. And uh, I just don't, I've never, I've been in real estate for 20 years and I, I don't see that. I, I don't see people walking away from their houses because the market has gone down a little bit. 
Well, as we saw after the uh, the downturn in 2007, a lot of people were walking away from deposits. They weren't 20% deposits, but you know maybe they were zero or, or 5% deposits. So in order for these developers to get loans, they had to require much larger deposits. I know that when we started to see the turnaround in about 2010, some developers were requiring 50% deposits. Because well, new, de new developments require less down because they can sell the units faster. These are existing condominiums, which is very affordable housing. And a lot of first-time home buyers, they don't want a single-family home anymore. They know the work that it takes, and they just don't want it. They, uh, condominiums are much more acceptable now to the younger generation, where in the past, uh, you know, baby boomers thought, no, you have to have a house. A condominium isn't, a real, uh, isn't real real estate. You don't own the ground. And uh, especially for people in the military. If, they're, if they have to leave their house for four or six months, it's easier to leave a condominium and have somebody stop by once a week than a single-family home where someone has to cut the grass, check on this, the roof leak. Uh, the condominium, they have people there to, to uh, look out for it for them. Hmm. Well, you're absolutely right. A lot more needs to be done for our returning veterans. Yeah, and this is an area where... where well, thanks again, for your call, Anthony. An area where preservation is really important because a lot of the units, those existing units we're talking about are, once again, along that I-95 corridor. Uh, and and certainly working with our, our lenders, local municipalities can can hopefully do something to ease up on, on some of the uh, underwriting criteria, but at the same time providing, whether it be through the Community Development Block Grant Program or other, other local uh, or, or, or federal uh, housing programs provide maybe down payment assistance or, or other types of assistance that can get uh, people into the uh, units. But you bring up the point you bring up when I asked you the first question about Irma and stuff. I mean, so if a storm were to hit that I-95 corridor or the West Dixie corridor or whatever, I mean, you're, they were built before the current codes were in effect. So you, they do need to be preserved. How can that be done? Yeah, and, and that's that's the 800-pound gorilla. It's it's there. It always, it's always something that we're going to have to be mindful of. Um, but these units, if we're talking units that are 40, 50 years old, need to be retrofitted, um, and we're talking $100,000 or more probably per unit in, in many of these locations. Uh, so yeah, that which is probably more than, than they're even that's, worth. That's right. So and that makes it more difficult. So we're talking purchase rehab here that that's going to be very very expensive. And once again, without the resources at the state and federal level, it's going to be very very difficult. Looks like we need some uh, phila philanthropic. Um, Matthew, you wanted to add yeah. So Ned brings up a, a good point, and that is, uh, it's not just the land cost, right? But it's construction cost. You're, you've got market rate developers, big condo developers who are spending a lot of money on construction. They can pay more, right? So they have, they have more resources. They can sell it for more. They can rent it for more. When you're talking about affordable, you're capped on what you can make on your income. You can't really afford to compete for a construction like a market rate developer can. So there's a lot of challenges there, and that's why we need the subsidy from the federal and state government. And we – go ahead, Bonnie. Well, we just have an emailer who says that – um, this is Eric. He says, serious issue with housing. Housing plus toll roads equal unsustainable. I mean, that's another consideration. I don't even, 
you know, I don't even know how expensive those toll yeah, roads yeah. are. I, but I when you're living out west. Yeah, I mentioned housing and transportation costs earlier. I, I think when the H&T index was a, <laughs> originally designed, I don't think people were talking about toll roads that have taken another $50, $100 out of people's pockets yeah. each week. And we move along to uh, another caller, uh, Enrique in Sunny Isles. Hi. Hello there. How are you doing? Good. Um, well, my question was, um, I, I had a house from, from 2003 to, through 2007 that I had rented with uh, Section 8. And uh, so I experienced the whole system, how it works and everything. And it was a nightmare to say the least. My very first check took about eight months for me to receive it. And I only got it after I didn't show up at the housing department uh, down in Coral Gables with my video camera and I started showing what was really happening in there. And it's just complete chaos. At that time, Miami-Dade lost, um, I think it was over $10 million in federal grant money, money that was given to Florida, to Miami, to be used in, in low-income housing. We lost that money because they never used it. That money was sitting for a year. They never used it. And the federal government took that money back. So I don't really think that the problem is the resources, but yes, being better managed and better organized so we can make the most out of what we have. So that's my question is what is it done today differently than was back in 2007? So if we have the resources, we are sure that that money is going to be used on the right way. Thank you. Yeah, th- thank you. That, mm. that's, that's a really good point. And th- there was some real issues with HUD, uh, CDBG funds, home funds uh, back 10 years ago. Um, spending a big, a big scandal. Yes, ex- and just expen- spending the money. You know, there's this <laughs> cities around the country that would spend that money you know, very quickly where we weren't spending the money. And there were, there were reasons for that. But, but this also gets back to a really important point, and I'm glad the, the, the caller raised it, is that um, the... At, at this point, those funds that, that he was referring to, they've been cut drastically over the years. And, and the current the current budget in Washington is to, is to get rid of the community development block grant program altogether. So, which includes the community redevelopment agencies. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be the, there were very little resources. There, there were very little resources over the last twenty years. Now we're essentially talking about resources that are are going to be, you know, taken away completely. So getting back to the solutions question that Bonnie's raised a couple times, it's going to take local creative financing. Localities are going to have to step up. The state... It's going to be a revolution. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But at least on the short term, the the federal government and the state government do not have the resources for us. So if if localities can't come up with this creative financing through private-public partnerships, uh, you mentioned (laughs) philanthropy, um, Bonnie, the... Unless that's done, we're not even going to be, be, begin to make a dent because when we're talking ten to twelve thousand units a year, um, we have to figure out some local solutions for that. We're speaking about the affordable housing crisis here in South Florida with Dr. Ned Murray and Matthew Rieger. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Stay with us, and we'll get to your calls as soon as we can. Forty-six minutes past one o'clock. It's today's topical currents. Joseph Cooper, Bonnie Berman, FIU's Dr. Ned Murray, and also 
Matthew Rieger, who's the president and CEO of the Housing Trust Group. Matthew, how can people get a hold of you if they have some questions about uh, the trust group? Well, you can go to our website, www.h, as in housing, t as in trust, g as in group, f as in florida.com. That's a good way to reach me. You didn't sound very encouraging as far as people being able to get on yeah. to with these huge waiting lists. It's unfortunate. Um, obviously, we wish we could do more. Um, if you see housing going up in your neighborhood, you know, usually there's a sign on the fence. Make sure you call that number. As soon going as, up for sale or, or going up For, for us, when, when we start construction, we put up a, a construction fence, and we have banners there with phone numbers, websites, email addresses. As soon as you see that, I would highly recommend that you immediately pull over to the side of the road and get that phone and number. And in, in the there. Tri-County area and in the Keys? Yeah, all throughout the, the state of Florida, we develop affordable housing. But uh, it's a waiting list, and so it's first come, first So if you go online, you can find out where those houses Ab- are. Absolutely. Go on our so website. heads up there. Yeah, go on our website. You'll see where we're developing uh, new affordable housing in different stages of development. Uh, currently, we have seven projects in construction with another 10 that are in pre-development where we're in underwriting with firm financing allocations that mm-hmm. we've competitively earned through the state of Florida. Okay. And we'll take another caller, uh, Gerald in Tamarack. Gerald, Hi. Oh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, my my thing is on rentals. Yeah, I, I'm a realtor, and I find, especially in a lot of 55 plus communities, they request they require that the re- that the rentee has a certain has a high not only a high uh, credit score, but making uh, you know like thirty thirty five thousand dollars a year income. And I don't know why they, you know, I find it very discriminatory because these people have no fiduciary interest responsibility to the uh, condo association, the owner of the condo that's renting it. And then I find it, you know, especially in 55 plus communities, and I think it's very discriminatory that, you know, you're getting these older condos that, uh, that, that people that want to move into it or maybe just on Social Security or so, you know, and they're not making that much money, but they can afford, you know, the monthly rent and everything, and the owner is the one that has to pay the assessments and the maintenance on it. What do they think about that? So so you're asking about um, the the condo association requiring a yeah, certain... Yeah, it requires the, the renter to have a certain income. Whereas the renter has no fiduciary responsibility to the uh, association. Hmm. Sure, but uh, the condo has their own documents and, and board of directors, and, and these are just the, the rules that they've put into place. They can incorporate uh, rental uh, credit scores. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, you probably hear these stories about, you know, New York when you're trying to get into a co op and you got this series of interviews, and they're just trying to. Um, I mean, these are issues that unfortunately they have the control over when yes. they write their bylaws. Correct. Yeah. We have an emailer, J.E. in Weston. An issue we're concerned about in Weston, and she's a renter in Weston, is talk of the conversion of a golf course into a condo or rental unit. The community is up in arms complaining about the crime and low-quality people it will bring to the area, creating petitions, etc. We are an Ivy League-educated family renting an apartment in Weston where we cannot afford a house but want the best schools for our children. There's a wrong idea about renters. We care about the community. We're involved in our children's school, care for our home, and provide medical care to these wealthier residents. 
Our complex is home to police officers, doctors, nurses, and business owners. We all want a safe place to live and the best possible education for our kids. Well, one of the challenges going forward, particularly as, as Matt was saying, more and more people are renting the, 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 the home ownership rate. And they're paying time. property taxes indirectly through their rents. That's right. Um, younger people, people in general, are going to rent um, more than ever. And this trend will probably continue for a long time. So I, I think our communities need to understand that, that, that renter demand is, is their population. It's helping to meet their particular needs. Uh, and we should try to open our, our, um, our communities to, to the renters who will probably also be part of our workforce and, and our teachers. And our well, as she was saying, yeah. and nurses and doctors. Yeah, and so, um, and we have to understand that, that um, you know, a lot of our workers here are in the service sector industries, and they they need that rental housing, and they're the ones who are, who are working in the hotels and in the restaurants and places like that. Uh, there is always going to be, relative to rental housing, this this NIMBY kind of perspective. Right. Um, it, it's always had some kind of you know ne- negative um, uh, aspect to it, but I I think as long as we begin to understand that the rental market is really the market that is that is probably most prominent right now and will be for some time that will be much more open towards that. And in each instance, you know, if you have a house and you have a loan on your house, you have a mortgage, you don't pay your mortgage, you're going to get foreclosed. Mm -hmm. If you're a renter and you don't pay your rent, you're going to be evicted. Everyone's got a, you know, as a requirement in each instance to pay um, either the bank or their landlord. Um, You know, if there's a stigma attached to, to renting, people better get over it pretty quickly because that's the way this world is moving. Let's take a few more calls. We're kind of short on time, so please be brief. Uh, Christina in Cutler Bay. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I just wanted to weigh in. I am 30 years old. I live in Cutler Bay. I work in Key Largo. I make $11 an hour, and I'm driving 80 miles round trip a day. Um, I can't even afford to... I have never been able to live on my own. I've never been able to. I've lived here my whole life, and it's very um, sad to me that I see almost everybody in my age group cannot afford to move up in our economy down here. I have seen many friends who they love living in Miami, they love living down south here, but they just simply cannot afford it anymore. And unfortunately, the only things that are affordable seem to be in neighborhoods where we wouldn't want to start a family or raise a family. Um, there's just so little resources down here for people of our age bracket, not only age bracket, but our, you know, uh, the service industry that we're in. Right. There's just nothing it feels like down here for us. And I'm really happy that you guys are talking about this because it's something that I think about almost on a daily basis. Well, you're living it, you know. What, what is your age range, Christine? 30s. 30. I'm 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the rent's, the rent's only too high, you know, when incomes are low. And that's another component that we really haven't discussed, and I, I don't really have some, some ready solutions for you, but, but people need to make more money. People need to have better jobs. I just want to read the first two paragraphs of a piece that Michael Putney wrote for the Miami Herald on April 5th. American Dream is too expensive in South Florida. Income inequality is number one problem in South Florida. It's a dream killer that undermines our sense of community, heightens class and status distinctions, and sheds the social contract. 
It's also forcing a sizable portion of our middle class neighbors, police officers, teachers, government workers, daycare staffers, retail clerks to move to places where they can afford to live. Less satisfying, more affordable. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, and I think it's the essence, as, as, as Matt referred to. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago um, that uh, actually it was Wilson's there. At, it was at our rollout of the prosperity study for Miami-Dade oh. County, it, and it was, it was a study that really looked at income inequality, uh, but also the larger economy of Miami-Dade and, and, and the problem that we do have in terms of wages. About 60% of our employment is in low-wage uh, service sector jobs. Uh, we need to diversify that. We do have, you know, an excellent record in terms of uh, entrepreneurial startups. But the problem is they, their survival rate is one of the lowest in the country. So on one hand, we're the, right. we have one of the highest uh, startup rates in the country. We have one of the, also one of the uh, highest, uh, you know, in terms of uh, th- those, those Fa- companies not making it for five years. Or so. Right, and it's hard to get companies to move down here because of the lack of affordable housing stock. So, you know, why would you want to move down if there's not going to be a nice place for you to live? So the corporations don't want to move here because they're uh, – uh, yeah, mi- middle-level workers uh, can't afford the housing that's right. in South Florida. That's right. Well, this has been an uplifting conversation. <laughs> this Between this and sea level rise and Irma, uh, where do we go? <laughs> I don't know. Well, Call your politician. Okay, say, you know, you have to be, you have to be civically engaged. And that would be even on your municipal level then certainly your county and county commissioners and state legislatures, both the representatives um, and the state senate. Yeah, leadership on this issue is the big gap. Uh, Two years ago, the the Metropolitan Senate joined forces with the University of Miami's uh, uh, School of uh, uh, Center for Civic and and Community Engagement to look at this very issue of thought leadership on this issue. And and we've been doing those studies over the last two years uh, because there is this gap. If we don't have the political leadership on this, we, at, at every level, at every every municipality has its responsibility, not just county government. But there are solutions out there. We need to support Senators Cantwell and Hatch with their joint legislation to increase the low-income housing tax credit. We just need to let people know that this is an important issue for us as a community. Well, I think m- m- the majority of people do know because they are living in that particular situation. Well, we want to thank you um, that was Matthew Rieger. He's the president and CEO of the Housing Trust Group. They're a developer of multifamily residential communities with over 40 years of experience in Florida and throughout the southeastern United States and Arizona. And again, the website is htgf.com. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you. And Dr. Ned Murray, Associate Director of the Metropolitan Center at Florida International University. He's a leading expert on economic and housing market issues in South Florida. And that's metropolitan.fiu.edu. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And our apologies to those callers and emailers. We couldn't get on the air. We ran out of time. Thanks for listening. Our lead producer, Richard Ives. Technical direction from online content producer, Jason Zabka. Polly Landis is associate producer. As always, it's easy to get free audio downloads of each program at our website, That's WLRN.org. Follow the radio and Topical Currents links. We also have the iTunes podcast as well as the Topical Currents Facebook page. And we hope more and more of you have power and are doing well post-IRMA. And join us tomorrow for a program with longtime South Florida executive and consultant Pauline Winnick. 
We'll take a much different look at Hurricane Irma, how people got along with each other in stores, in traffic, at home with no power, AC, phone, internet, ice. How did you deal with the frustration? Joseph Cooper, Bonnie Berman. Stay tuned for Here and Now, next from NPR News.